All right, those of you that are holding your Bibles, join me, if you would, back in Romans chapter 7. I intend to finish the chapter this morning. There's a great deal here that the Lord indeed wants us to know and understand. If you get there, Romans 7, if you'll stand, we'll read the passage together. Romans chapter 7, beginning in verse 14. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. For that which I do, I allow not. For what I would, that do I not. But what I hate, that do I. If then I do that which I would not, I consent unto the law that it is good. Now then it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. For I know that in me that is in my flesh dwelleth no good thing. For to will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good I find not. For the good that I would I do not, but the evil which I would not, that I do. Now if I do that I would not, it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. I find then a law that when I would do good, evil is present with me. For I delight in the law of God after the inward man. But I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with the mind I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh the law of sin. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for... Despite our frailty, you are very straightforward with us. You hide nothing from us that is useful or profitable. For us to come to know Christ or to walk with Him in victory in this present world. Father, I pray that you would sift hearts this morning. Lord, there are so many hidden thoughts within so many of us that are revealed in this passage things that we're ashamed of, things that we do not like. But yet there they are, and I thank you, Lord, that you just address them as they are and call them what they are. And lead us onward to greener pastures. Lord, give us understanding this morning. Give us the mind of thy Spirit to really examine ourselves, to make right application, to respond appropriately. In Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Now I'd like you to picture in your mind that you go to bed tonight, you pillow your head expecting a restful night of sleep, and you fall into a very, very deep slumber, and sometime in the middle of the night, your soul is gripped with the terrifying fear of a very vivid nightmare, and where you find yourself in your nightmare, it's nighttime, it's black as pitch, and just a few eerie rays from the moon penetrate the blackness, and here you are at an opening in a very strange forest, and you're looking and you can barely make out the scenes before you of total desolation. What you see is what used to be a village, you see only the remains. You see houses that have been laid desolate, knocked to the ground. You see the evidence of the belongings of the people, but no sign of the people. And 
Here and there, as you look around, you see the evidence of very, very massive claw marks that some terrifying beast has left on the scraps of the timber from the homes and on various tree trunks of the area. As you think about your situation, you are utterly terrified and filled with hope that whatever creature did this is a long way off. All of a sudden, out of the corner of your eye, you detect the motion of something very dark and very large. And of course, your reaction is to take off running through this strange forest. You try to scream for help, but no sound comes out. All you hear is the beating of your own heartbeat against the bones of your chest, your own labored breathing as you fight for your life to get away from whatever it is that's coming after you. You're jumping over deadfall logs, you trip and stumble time and again, but you dare not look behind you because you really don't want to see what it is that's coming after you. Eventually, this savage beast strikes you a blow that knocks you to the ground. He leaps upon you, and just before he sinks his fangs in to finish you off, a glint of moonlight flashes across this creature's face and you find you're looking at your own face, staring right back at you. And then you wake up in a pool of sweat, heart still beating, and behold, it was only a dream. Well, that picture really is not very far off from what is being painted here at the end of Romans 7, only what Paul is trying to convince us is, is that this most assuredly is no dream. Before we get to the glorious and heavenly subject matter of Romans chapter 8, uh, we have to pass through another Spirit-inspired black and ugly tunnel. Now, if you were here back when we went through Romans chapter 3, perhaps you'll recall a similar terminology back then. And what was going on back in Romans 3 is Paul was drawing the net to bring all men to one place, and that was under the condemnation of God. <coughs> He was speaking to lost people outside of Christ, trying to convince them to abandon all hope of righteousness of themselves, all hope of fixing and changing themselves, and to drive them to the righteousness that's to be found in Christ. But now we find a similar dark picture being painted, only this one is being directed at those called children of the light. This is language spoken to those who are indeed believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's just as black as what was painted in Romans 3. And the obvious goal we have to recognize is to cause us to abandon all hope, all confidence, and all false notions about our own fallen nature. I hope everybody here has noticed that our God is not in the business of flattery. You know, God loves you too much and life is too short for Him to allow you to persist in idle fancies about how good you really are. That's true for somebody who's lost. That's true in large part of somebody who indeed belongs to Christ. You know, uh, the reason the modern pop psychology and so-called self-esteem gospel, do you know why it's so powerless to transform hearts? Because it seeks to downplay or deny the very truth those people need to be shaken out of their delusion and to place their confidence in God Himself. 
All of this nonsense that fills the Christian bookstores and permeates Christian radio about how Americans need more self-esteem actually drives them away from the very help which they claim they need. I'm also convinced that one of the reasons that so many of the Lord's genuine people are constantly tossed about like a cork in the ocean and never really achieve real stability of character in the Christian life is because they have never embraced exactly what the Holy Spirit has to say regarding the specifics of the nature that they still possess. Do you know that to whatever degree you hold false notions about your residence in nature, to whatever degree you deny it or are in deception over it, to that degree you cannot walk in the Spirit. So this is something that's quite imperative for us to know. And I want to keep in mind at the beginning, God is not speaking these things to make you hang your head in guilt and shame. That's not the purpose. Neither is God saying these things to make you accept defeat and to make excuses for sin. What He's doing is bringing us through this valley so that we can break out truly into the light and learn to say, nay, but in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him that loved us. And all these things speaks not just of things without. It speaks of things within, which encompasses all the enemies that we have. Our subject this morning, I already spoke of it some last week, is the undiminished traitor within. Now last week, we went through uh, verse 7 through 13. And the subject matter there is Paul is flashing back to his lost days as a Pharisee. And keep in mind what a Pharisee was. The modern day counterpart, you could say, was a church-going person who gave tithes and said they believed in God and kept a list of rules and believed themselves to be worthy of God's favor. And this religious, darkened, hell-bound Pharisee named Saul of Tarsus, he's giving his experience of what happened when the pure and lovely law of God penetrated his wicked, self-righteous mind and began to collide with his own sinful nature. And he talks at some length about the battle that goes back and forth between the law and how his flesh responds. And it's quite a discussion. And one of the things we see there that's produced is the law actually, from the outside, makes him a worse person. And of course, the question naturally arises, is the law the problem? I mean, from the human standpoint, if something enters a person's life and they become worse off, we naturally would conclude whatever that thing was is bad. And of course, what he's pointing out is the law of God comes in and stirs up your wicked nature, especially in a lost person, and makes them worse for a time as they try to attain their own righteousness and he says the problem's not the law. The problem is sinful humanity and their inability to keep the law. That's the real issue. Now, uh, as we get into this passage, I think we can say very confidently Paul is speaking from the perspective of a saved man. 
Now, I have to tell you, I get intensely frustrated when I run across writing that tries to force Paul into being lost and dead in his sins in the closing verses of Romans 7. Here's why I say that. First of all, what that effectively does is rob genuine Christians of one of the most important passages on sanctification to be found anywhere in the entire New Testament. There can be no question the experience mentioned there has to do with the struggles of a saved soul. Now, there are a number of things we could do to prove that. In fact, we could preach an entire message on why Paul is converted in that passage. I'm not going to do that, but I'm just going to point out two reasons. One we touched on last week. One is the tenses of the verbs in the passage. He goes from past tense last week to present tense now. He's not talking about what he was. He is talking about what he is. Present tense. Secondly, some of the statements in the text itself that we just read cannot be true of a lost person. Look at verse 22. For I delight in the law of God after the inward man. Tell me, is that true of a lost person? Absolutely not. A lost person is fundamentally at enmity with God. And despite all the religious rhetoric they come up with about how they're seeking Him, the bottom line is, when the truth of God penetrates their heart, they hate the light. That's not true of somebody that has been born again. Now, we ended last time in verse 14 where the tenses, that's the verse where they change from past to present. Now, keep this in mind. Between the passage we were in last week and the one we're in this week, chronologically, in Paul's past, you can read about it in Acts chapter 9 and following the actual record. Chronologically, between the experience mentioned last week and the experience mentioned this week, there had been a supernatural and radical change that had taken place within the heart of the self-righteous Pharisee, Saul of Tarsus. All of his grandiose visions of his own righteousness had been laid in the dust. He'd been cut to the heart by the ex exposition of the law of God. It showed him how utterly depraved he was in the sight of the Holy One that inhabits eternity. His sins had been forgiven. He'd been given a new nature which now loves righteousness. He had been regenerated or born again. But it's critical to understand this. Paul is now bringing that same corrupted, vile, sin nature right into the discussion of daily life as a child of God. Now let's say somebody sincerely comes up to you. They have questions about the Bible. Whether they're lost or saved doesn't really matter. But here's their question. At the moment of salvation... Can you explain to me, please, what it is that happens to your fallen sinful nature? How would you answer that question? It's really an easy answer. At the moment of your salvation, do you know what happened to your fallen sin nature? Nothing. What happened at your salvation is you were given another new nature that now wars with the old, and now the war has begun. 
You see, the reason the lost can achieve some measure of peace at times within is because they're not fighting themselves. There's no principle of new life that's condemning their sinful behavior, but the Spirit of God comes in, and He takes up residence, and He shines the light in the soul, and all of a sudden, the fight begins. Blood is shed. Claws begin to scratch. Howls are heard. Now is where the battle really starts. I guess you could look at it this way. What happened to the character of the Canaanites? When Israel was given the title deed of that land, they were given the authority of the decree of the living God to go in and utterly exterminate the Canaanites. What did that do to the character of the Canaanites? It did nothing. You see, they were still Canaanites to the core. They were still giants, reprobates, dwelling in walled cities, puffed up with satanic pride and not attending to go anywhere. And the same thing is true of the warfare that we face in the Christian life. Now notice the terms in verse 14. If you back up just a minute mentally, what Paul says about the law is that it was holy, just, and good. That's quite a commendation. And then he says in verse 14, we know, it's a universal truth held among the Lord's genuine people, that the law is spiritual. Remember, that's the Greek word pneumatikos. What it means is derived from the mind of the Holy Spirit of God. The law is a product of God's character. That's what he's saying. It doesn't get any more spiritual than that. So he says the problem's not with the law. But look what he says present tense about himself. But I am carnal. I am non-spiritual. I am unholy. I am unjust. I am not good. I'm the very opposite of what the law represents. And then look at the description. Sold under sin. This is a present tense statement from a Christian. You know that phrase, sold under sin? It seems to be a reference to a practice in the ancient world. They would take over another people group. How many of you know they didn't treat each other very kindly sometimes? They would take their prisoners of war, they would divide them up, put them up on the auction block, and they would sell them as slaves. So Paul's painting a picture of himself saying, I have been captured at the point of spear and sold back to sin. Now here's the question I hope some of you are asking. Isn't this the same apostle that wrote Romans 6? Where in the opening verses he says, you are dead to sin. 2,000 years ago on the cross, sin, your sin nature, was dealt a fatal death blow. But you see the topic there, what was it? Positional truth. The topic there was what happened on that cross from God's perspective that is indeed a fact. Whether you acknowledge it or not as a Christian, whether you feel it or not, whether you believe it or not, it is true if you belong to Christ, the death blow has been dealt to the sin nature. But here's what's happening in Romans 7. Romans 7, he's speaking from the perspective of human experience, from one who charges into the Christian life, wrongfully assuming that his sin nature has been diminished or is no longer exerting influence upon his life, and he finds himself run 
over in the tracks by the very sin nature which he thought was gone. You see, he's not contradicting himself. What he's saying is sometimes positional truth runs contrary to practical experience. How many of you have found that? Most of us would say you have. Even though the inward Canaanite has been sentenced to death by the authority of God himself, you still find that your nature is Canaanite to the core. Fundamentally hasn't changed. Now here's what Paul finds in verse 15 and 16. First of all, by practical experience as a Christian, he finds he hates his own actions. Here's what he says in verse 15. For that which I do, I allow not. Here's what he's saying. The very things that I do, I don't approve of. He's saying my renewed mind is screaming at me to stop my sinful behavior. I'm aware of my conscience passing constant judgment on my thoughts, my words, my deeds, and the good things that I want to do, I don't do, and the things that I hate, I find myself doing. Sound familiar? Look what he says in verse 16. If then I do that which I would not, I consent under the law that it's good. Here's what, he's, here's what he's expressing. All the while I'm nodding my head in hearty agreement to the Word of God. It strikes like a knife through my soul. I assent that God is right and I am wrong. I will say amen when my own sin is condemned. And all the while I consent to the Word of God that it is good. And I know that it's right. And I know what I should be doing. I'm still not doing it. Here's one thing I want to point out here, though. A lot of you know by experience exactly what I'm talking about. But take joy in this. That very struggle is one of the greatest proofs that you indeed belong to Christ. Because you see two natures fighting within, and the new nature will not drop it. And the reason you are so miserable is evidence of God's grace that He is not letting you go. He's set up residence in your soul. He's going to sanctify you. And He's going to bring you through this. Now let me ask you parents a question you're going to hate. Most of you will acknowledge what I just said is true in your own life. Do you allow your almost adult children or young adult children the liberty to fight this same battle the way it should be fought here. You come to your older child and say, why don't you do whatever it is that's right? He says, I don't know. What do you mean you don't know? I don't know. How can you not know you did it? You see, what that child needs is theological instruction concerning the resident evil within not more condemnation from without. Aren't we parents masters of hiding our own questions? 
that we know we ask and then condemning our children for asking the very same things that we were thinking that same week. Shouldn't be that way. Hopefully we're a little ahead on this journey. But we're fighting the same war as they are if they belong to Christ. Next, verse 17, here's what Paul does. He assigns blame to the right place. He says, now it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. Alright, so your child comes to you and they've disobeyed. And they quote that verse to you. What are you going to call that? You're going to call it an excuse. So is Paul saying it's not my fault? You'd be amazed what some of the early heretics did with this verse and what modern-day Christendom does with it. How many of you have noticed that modern-day Christendom embraces the term sinner like it's a badge of honor? Oh, I know I failed. I guess I'm just a sinner. But there's no sense of conviction. No sense of the shame they've brought to the glory of Christ. That's not what Paul's condoning. Paul is absolutely not making excuses for evil, but here's what he is doing. He's understanding and stating the fact that he indeed possesses two contrary natures. Now here's what they are. The new nature only, only desires righteousness. The old nature only desires evil. And so he's sorting out in his mind, where are these passions coming from? So, for one thing, the fact that he still finds himself committing deeds of evil is no reflection upon the work of regeneration that God has done. In other words, God has not given him an imperfect salvation. He can't bounce it around and say, the nature you gave me is still allowing me to do this. Secondly, He's acknowledging that he indeed has a shockingly corrupt old nature, and that is his greatest enemy that he has to combat. You know, the word dwelleth there is a really powerful word. It means to take up long-term residence. He says, within me, my old corrupt nature has set up long-term shop And he constantly has a bent to try to rule the roost and exercise dominion. He's there to stay and he has no plans to leave. And might I say, there is no help for any of us in denying the presence of that sin nature. You know, it's amazing how many, not all, but many want to deny something like Islamic terrorism. Oh, it doesn't exist. How many of you believe terrorism exists whether you deny it or not? And that jihad's going to happen even to those that deny it? Do you realize there's an internal jihadist living within you? And to deny that he's there does you no good at all? I frankly pity those who will stare you in the face and tell you they no longer possess the sin nature. Because all they're doing is damaging themselves. Remember what it says in 1 John, speaking of the indwelling sin nature. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive who? Ourselves. And in respect to that truth, the truth is not in you, he says. So it does no good. You can't fight an enemy that you deny is there, for starters. 
Now hopefully all of us remember, what are our great three spiritual enemies? There's Satan, there's the world, there's the flesh. So we have a powerful, invisible enemy known as the devil or Satan. And he's constantly making use of a visible, seductive influence known as the world. But what he's doing is appealing to a traitor dwelling within you. And that is where a great bulk of the problem really lies. Now Paul acknowledges here in the next verse that even as a believer, there is zero good. He says, I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwelleth what? No good thing. Now isn't it amazing? Those are spiritual words to say. Those are words that I wager you like to hear yourself speak. Oh, there's no good in me. I'm just a humble sinner saved by grace. There's really nothing commendable in this life of mine. It's all to the glory of God. But despite our spiritual chatter, isn't it amazing when that truth actually comes home with force to your soul? And God seeks to peel back your trust in the flesh and show you just how wretched you really are as a Christian. It's anything but humble and poetic. It will just about drive you to insanity. What Spurgeon used to say, you were just this morning in the prayer closet telling God what a vile worm you were deserving of nothing good and now you go out and you're offended when somebody tells you that's what you are. You see, these are words we say, but if we're, very, if we're not careful, we don't really believe the import of what's being said. Now let's just give a brief synopsis of the fallen nature quickly. We don't really even have to leave Romans. We can flip over either the same page or the next page in the early part of Romans 8. Okay, here he says an interesting thing about the flesh. Verse 7. Because the carnal mind, that's the fleshly mind, is at enmity with God. He says your fallen nature is an enemy of God. It still is, by the way. He says it's not subject to the law of God. Now how about this? Neither indeed can be. So for one thing, your resident and dwelling nature, even as a Christian, cannot be cleaned up. It cannot be sanctified. It cannot be diminished. It cannot be changed. It will never go away. And the sooner you understand that, the sooner you will be able to go on to real victory and the battle here that's outlined because you understand something of the traitor within. Many people get the idea their old man just sort of chained up in the basement. Absolutely not the case. Not at all. You can only repudiate and ignore the pleadings of the flesh and give it no space to flourish, to make not provision for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof, but you will not get rid of its influence on this earth. How about verses 8 and 9, the last chapter? Hopefully, I'm not even going to read them. If you were here, you remember the discussion. But... Uh, Paul essentially is painting the picture that his sin nature appeared dormant for a while. And then all of a sudden the Word of God enters the picture and it's like it stirred up his passions within and it made him a worse person. 
So one of the things your own seductive nature will do is appear for a time that it's not really there. And then at seasons it will rise up like a flash flood and threaten to overwhelm you. But you know when those seasons come? It's not necessarily because you're doing anything wrong. It's simply the nature of your fallen flesh that has been kicked back to life by some provoking, whatever that is. I think this is especially true of new Christians. I can't point to a verse in text, but experientially, those I've talked to, this is the experience of most. You come to Christ. The scales fell off. You're filled with joy. You experience a measure of victory. Many of the old sins are left behind, and in your mind you're sailing off into the Christian sunset to live happily ever after. But after a while, something happens, and you begin to experience an inward turmoil that you thought shouldn't be there, and it rattles your soul. You wonder where it's coming from. You know, it's like the children of Israel, they came out of Egypt on a high note of deliverance, but eventually they had to come to the waters of Marah that were very, very bitter. And for many a new convert, they eventually have to become, come to these waters of Marah and find out they do indeed still possess a sin nature, even as a Christian. You remember what the sinful flesh tries to do with the Scriptures? That was also last week. For one thing, it's going to try to stir you up all it can to make you disobey in response to the command you just heard. Here's the other thing your sinful flesh tries to do with the Scriptures. It tries to make you interpret them in the energy of the flesh by past prejudices and how you feel to get you to twist them and distort them so that it leads you aside into all manner of theological ditches and a shipwreck in the Christian life. That's what your nature tries to do with the good and pure Word of God. And then we find here in verse 15, your nature is continually attempting to exercise dominion that it does not lawfully possess. It's trying to bring you back to being sold under sin, to make you sin against the living God, despite the fact that you now have a changed nature that hates to do the very sin that you're committing. In essence, your fallen nature is a relentless accomplice of Satan, an avowed enemy of the living God, which will spare no attempt, and I mean no attempt, to bring you under its cruel bondage to lie, cheat, steal, kill, destroy, defile, pervert, and distort all that it possibly can. That's a fair picture of the traitor dwelling within in undiminished influence. What's one of the key manifestations? In verse 18, for to will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good, I find not. One of the fruits of this ongoing battle that God's sincere people find, here's what it is. They desire to do good, but they consistently find they are unable to carry out the good that they intend to perform. I honestly believe a lot of the impromptu sorts of counseling sessions and discipleship conversations that you will have in your Christian life, if you're paying attention to root causes, a vast majority of them are going to come back to that passage right there. 
You see, because of this inward struggle, we become living representations of what the Lord said to His disciples on that night. They wanted to pray with Him in the hour of temptation, but here they are snoring off to the side. And what did He say? The Spirit indeed is willing. You have a nature that wants to do right, but the flesh is weak. You see, there's a war going on. Our tendency is to look inward to our natural selves to try to live out and fulfill supernatural desires. And God in His mercy is going to allow that to fall flat on its face eventually for our own good. I mean, really, examine your own heart. How many of you can identify with this? You feel sometimes your great problem and struggle is not what... It's not that you don't know what's wrong. It's not that you don't know what's right. And the last thing you feel like you need is another sermon to tell you how wrong you are acting. And what you're inwardly screaming out is, my problem is not what I'm doing wrong. My problem is how to stop. Once again, sound familiar? Isn't it great how the Spirit of God knows our humanness and just declares what they are. And we see similar terminology in the next two verses of what we've already read. He says, I'm not doing good, but verse 19, the good that I would do, I don't do the evil, the wicked thing I'm trying to stop. I'm gritting my teeth. I've determined I'm not going to do it. And what happens? I do it anyhow. And then he points to his indwelling nature again as understanding where these passions are really coming from. Now there's a vital principle here mentioned in verse 21. I really think all of the Lord's people ought to have this verse committed to memory. It may save you in your next trial by fire. Here's what it says. I find in a law that when I would do good, evil is present with me. The way he uses the word law, he's not talking about the law of God. He's talking about a general principle. You and I might say uh, the law of gravity. There's really no law of gravity. You just know by experience, if you jump off a building, you're going to find the ground, right? That's a universally observed principle. Here's what Paul is saying. I find by practical Christian experience this universal principle, and here's what it is. When I determine to do good without exception, I find evil is present with me. You know, failure to heed this law really can only lead to shipwreck and discouragement in the Christian life. As long as you are dwelling on this fallen planet as a mortal, any time you determine to do good, expect your corrupt nature within to exert its wicked influence. Listen, this principle is precisely why you may not admit it to another person, but you open the Scripture sometimes and the most insidious satanic thoughts of doubt flash across your mind. Why should you listen to this nonsense? That's why this happens. This is why when you set aside time for prayer, when the moment of prayer actually begins, you can think of a dozen things you should be doing instead. 
This is why you'd rather do anything else at that moment than present your petitions and praises before the living God. This is why your mind wanders. This is why prayer is a battle. The fact that when you would do good, you determined to do good, evil is present with you, is why some of you had to debate whether or not to come to the church meeting this morning, but you actually discussed it with others or yourself. I don't feel like going. Maybe I won't. This is why when you determine that you're going to change some long-term sinful behavior, the moment you choose to obey the Word of God and stop making excuses, your inward passions are going to rise up in fury like locusts from the bottomless pit and fight you tooth and nail every step of the way. This is why some of the most perverse thoughts and motives that will ever assault your mind are going to come at the most sacred of moments. And you may sit there and you may hear what's passing through your head and though you hate it, you can't stand it and you wonder where it's coming from and you sit there in those moments and you wonder, do I really belong to Christ at all? But do you see, God is not condemning these or a thousand other similar happenings. On the contrary, what He's doing is telling you and I to expect it and not be shaken when we see this played out in our life as a general principle. Let me just make a couple applications of this principle. Okay, first of all, the war is never going to end between the two natures on this earth. But here's the deal. You cannot let that keep you from obedience. Do we understand that? Let me tell you at least two ways people are assaulted with this, I think. Okay? One is concerning motive. Now, is motive important? You bet it is. But how many of you have ever sought there, sat there and tried to analyze your motive about a certain thing and try as you might, you have to admit your motive is not 100% pure. Why is that? Because when you would do good evil is going to be present with you. May I suggest something that might sound shocking? I'm not saying self-examination is bad. But if you wait until you think your motives are 100% pure in any area of obedience, you will never obey. Secondly, with regard to our feelings. Well, here's what happens. Someone recognizes something in their life that needs to change. They understand the language, put off and put on. I'm new in Christ. Okay, I'm going to stop doing that. I'm going to choose to love. I'm going to choose to be kind. The battle arises and they choose to be kind. And what assaults their mind immediately? You dirty hypocrite, you don't feel like being nice. It's hypocrisy to deny that the battle's there. It is not hypocrisy to choose to obey God even though a flood tidal wave of feelings run against you. That is one of the highest demonstrations of commendable faith that pleases Him. What you'll find, I think, in your Christian life on the last day, your greatest exploits of faith are not when you felt like doing whatever it was you did. It was when you did not. 
You see, I've heard from the lips of so many people in varying degrees when they're fighting this sort of thing. They know this is wrong, and then they go to change it, and then they're assaulted by feelings and motives, and well, now I can't do it because I don't feel like it. Wrong question. You see, if you understand when you would do good, evil is going to be present. Expect it. Think about the thought process of somebody who does not understand the theology of their indwelling nature. They determine to do something good. Uh, passions rise up. Temptations rise up. Blasphemous thoughts rise up. And what happens? First, they're totally shocked and blindsided about where those came from. Now, what happens? Then they're filled with guilt that those thoughts actually pass through their head. Next, they determine not to obey because their motives are not perfectly pure. <coughs> Next, they feel guilty because they didn't obey. And if they don't get their theology, the sin nature corrected, they go around spin, thump, spin, thump on the satanic hamster wheel for years on end. Now think of the thought process of someone who understands what's going on in Romans 7. First of all, these passions arise. You automatically recognize what they are. That's not my new nature. That's my old nature dwelling in me. Why should I be surprised when God told me there's a hideous traitor dwelling within? I can expect him to throw that at me. Silence, fallen flesh. Next, they determine they are going to obey despite the struggles within because the only way to purify your motives, by the way, is drawing near to God. You see, such a person develops continuity of character because they're not constantly examining motive and feeling, but their eyes are on the real battle lines where God draws them and believing actually what He says about what dwells within. Now He gives further explanation here about His two natures. Look at verse 22. For I delight in the law of God after the inward man. The word delights to rejoice. You know, if you belong to Christ, there's those seasons, aren't there? Here you are with the Scriptures open before you. You feel like your soul just opened up drinking the dew of heaven. Applications leap out at you that you've not seen before. It's like it's actually a living Word. You find the presence of God seems tangible and real. You pray like he's actually listening. You don't want that sense of his presence to end. You're delighting in the law of God after the inward man. But I see another law in my members. And no sooner does that tangible sense of God's presence and peace start to diminish... But it's like a thousand cannons from the pit of hell all of a sudden assault your mind and dash your ivory tower to pieces. And all of a sudden you're just as low as you were high. You're just as carnal as you thought you were spiritual. You're just as anxious as you were at peace. You're just as angry as you were calm. You hate your actions. You despise yourself. And you're inwardly screaming out, what in the world is wrong with me? But you see, it's this very sense of walking as a living contradiction that brought the Apostle Paul himself to cry out 
in such agony in verse 24. You see, if you can identify by life experience with what I'm saying as a Christian, you are in very good company. The Apostle Paul, who wrote half of the New Testament, traversed this same pathway and was brought to the same inward turmoil and asked the same exact questions. You see, it's only those who actually desire to please Him that really pass through this type of deep water. A Christian who's flippant and could care less about obedience to God, they read Romans 7 and they don't have a clue what it's talking about. Neither do the ungodly, by the way. You see, the evidence that God is working in you, that there is a fight against sin, that very good thing is what is setting up this inward controversy that God is bringing to the forefront. Look what he cries out. Oh, wretched man. Not that I was. That I am. The word wretched means miserable. It, all, it also carries a note of exhaustion. He's exhausted with the struggle. He's unable to continue. He feels like he's pinned to the ground with the weight of this inward distress. Look at the question. Who shall deliver me from the body of this death? You know, the picture is not pretty, but here's a fair way to look at it. Paul feels like there's this decaying, rotting corpse that an enemy has lashed to his back. And he's trying to get away from the decay and the stench. And here he is flailing around all over the place like a maniac. And he's screaming out, Get this thing off my back, or I am going to lose my sanity. And here he is, he wants to rid himself of this disgusting burden, and all that happens is he's wearied to the point of exhaustion. He collapses to the ground, and he's now pleading for help from the outside beyond himself. And do you notice what the question went from? You see, while he was struggling with it, the question was, how? All the while he's fighting and he's saying, how do I get this thing off my back? How do I fix the problem? How do I win this battle? How, 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 how? Finally, he collapses to the ground. And what's the question? Who? Who? You see, that's the central point of this whole struggle that the Holy Spirit is bringing us to. It's not how you are going to win the battle because you're not. The question is, who is able to bring deliverance? Now that's a wonderful question. Here's something that's very important to understand. I've already mentioned a number of times, if you're a Christian, you possess two natures. But do you understand your new nature your new nature, which desires only righteousness, still possesses no power in and of itself. That is absolutely critical to understand. Your new nature possesses a desire for righteousness. The capacity to enjoy the holiness of God. But your new nature itself has no 
power. Which is why the focus is always out to what Christ has done. Consider the language in Galatians 5. This I say then, walk in the Spirit or by means of the Spirit, and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Why? For the flesh lusteth against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. These are contrary the one to the other, so that ye, or you, cannot do the things that ye would. Did you catch that? This dichotomy of nature, the end product, is you are unable to do the good that you want to do. So he brings us to the point of saying, I need to learn to walk in or by means of the Spirit. Who shall deliver me? Well, what a wealth of hope is stated in verse 25, isn't it? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. You see, there indeed is great power available, but law and law principle cannot produce holiness. A system of rules cannot sanctify you. All attempts at self-help will end in failure, and as long as we trust in the arm of the flesh, and to that degree, we cannot experience consistent victory in the Christian life. It's an impossibility. The flesh is not only a present reality and powerless to perform good, it's also corrupt and wicked, beyond description. And so it's only as we grab hold of the positional truths of what Christ has indeed accomplished on our behalf and reckon them to be true and learn to abide in Christ based on His merit and not ours, we find victory. Now in Romans 8, the key word is spirit. Someone says, which is it? The Holy Spirit of Christ that gives the victory. The Holy Spirit's ministry is what? The Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, His ministry chiefly is to shine the spotlight on Christ. Walking in the Spirit is really tantamount to understanding all the depth of truth concerning Christ and growing in that knowledge and our ability to take hold of it and reckon it to be true. You see, it's not inward. It's outward. It's not on feeling, it's on positional truth that God states regardless of my frame of mind. One of the benefits, though, of this struggle in Romans 7 is that we have a magnified sense of the grace of God as it really is. Don't you find that the more wicked you see yourself to be? The more you can really praise God for His grace that He knew all of that and a thousand times more and He still saved our sorry carcasses lifted us out of the dunghill and set us in the heavenlies as trophies of His love and mercy. One side note I think is important to point out. This growth, this learning to walk in the Spirit, and we'll be talking more about it in Romans 8 as we get there, is by degrees as a part of our Christian growth. Someone teach it this way. There's this dichotomy. Either you are in the Spirit walking or you are carnal. And everybody crams into one of those two categories. What does that do to the mind of a sincere Christian that really knows what they are? Every one of them to a man is going to cram themselves in the carnal category and say, I haven't grown at all. That's not the case. Walking in the Spirit is like walking in the physical realm. It's laborious and difficult and takes real mental effort at first, but by and by it becomes... Second nature. When you walk, you're habitually thrown out of bounds every step you take, but eventually you become used to the walk. 
and how to do it. You know, one of the best pieces of counsel I ever received early on in my preaching days. You know, you tend to overanalyze and go, is, what is the real effect of my teaching? People listen, people compliment, but what is it really accomplishing? Is it really by means of the Spirit, or is it, or is it just the crackling of burning thorns? And so I'm talking to this much older pastor, and I'm, and I'm, I'm highlighting the struggle that I'm having. Here's what he said. He said, you know, I understand what you're saying because I battle with the same thing. But either I can just step back and sit and wait for God to zap me with something or I can press on and obey during the process of growth as I'm learning to walk in the Spirit. And that's God's intent for pointing these things out. It's not go hide in the closet until you have some sort of Pentecostal experience. But it is understanding what's really going on inside with these battles and interpreting them in light of Scripture. You know, a lot of people carry condemnation for temptations that arise within that God doesn't condemn you for. He most assuredly has something to say when you yield to the temptation. But there's a big difference between rejecting that thought as a pleading of your wicked flesh that God says you have and sitting there for a next hour hanging your head feeling guilty that that thought ever came into your head when you really didn't sin at all. You see, we've got to see this from God's perspective. Into verse 25, we're done. He lays out the battle lines that are going to be true as long as we dwell in this flesh on this earth. So then with the mind, I myself serve the, law, serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. You see, your renewed mind is going to desire righteousness. Your flesh, so long as you lean on it, all it can do is serve sin. That's all it can produce. I'm looking at people that are tripartite beings. You are a trinity of sorts, not the same way God is. You have a body. That's the physical you I'm looking at. You have a spirit. That's the part that's been raised to life. That's your new nature. Then there's the immaterial you, your soul. It's your mind. It's your will and it's your emotions which is subject to the ravages of the very nature that you received from Adam. But I hope that all of us understand as we grow in grace that your battle, predominantly your life, is lived in your mind. That's where the real battleground is. That's why the exhortation is in Romans 12, verse 2. Don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your emotions, by the renewing of your mind. To learn to think God's thoughts after Him. You see, and it's as the mind takes hold of the scriptural truths that God declares, particularly concerning Christ, the proper order then scripturally, your mind leads the train. Your will then determines it's going to obey God come what may. And your emotions eventually follow along, but your emotions aren't invited to the bargaining table. When you're going to obey God and you stop and have a self-conference and ask how you feel about obeying God, you're already going the wrong way. There's no help there. Now next week we're going to get into what really is considered by many to be the most 
important chapter for the Christian in all of the New Testament. Now that's largely subjective, it's based on opinion. But there's a lot of solid Christians throughout history who go on and on and on and on and on about the real victory to be unlocked in Romans 8, especially in light of the black picture that we just painted concerning our own nature in Romans 7. So I'll plead with you, be in prayer this week, that God would instruct our souls, that God would raise us up. You know, I find it, uh, Lewis Berry Schaefer, he's a theologian I highly respect. He founded Dallas Theological Seminary back when it was good. Yes, I said back when it was good. But you know one of the things he did every year, the first week of seminary, he taught an entire week on what it means to walk in the Spirit. Because he understood the battle his students were fighting was primarily one of, I know what to do, but I don't find the power to do it. And he knew if he didn't instruct at that level, he really couldn't help them. Now, if you're here this morning, you've not believed in Christ. You've not come to the place where you, are, you acknowledge you are just as sinful and wicked as God says you are. May I say, if you're sitting here and you take beef with anything God says about your own corruption, you are probably lost and dead in your sins. Because the soul that's been prepared to see God, who He is, their mouth is stopped. They understand their own corruption and God points that out to bring them to living waters. You see, righteousness has been provided. Salvation has been given through Christ. There is one who is innocent, God Himself, who died to pay the penalty for your sin, and that's the only way of salvation that exists for anybody on this planet. But as a Christian, I want to end by highlighting this. The things we've discussed here are a way to a higher plateau a victory in the Christian life. God only paints black pictures to bring the light out at the end and make it seem all the more glorious. Sometimes the night is blackest just before the break of day. And that's how this passage needs to be viewed. Let's pray. Father, I thank You that You just speak things as they are. I pray you'd help us to take these statements at face value. Lord, not to bear guilt that we shouldn't be carrying. Not to confess sins that we didn't commit. We want to confess sin, but we don't want to bear the responsibility for things that we didn't yield to. Help us, Lord, not to be shocked when our most sacred moments are assaulted by the most Wicked temptations, not just from without, but from within. Rather than being shocked and put down by that, help us to rise up and do battle. Help us to hack down the inward temptation of the sword of the Spirit. Understanding that when we would do good, indeed evil is present with us. Help us, Lord, to press on and obey in spite of our emotions, which seem to fight us so often when we're doing right. I pray, Lord, you'd prepare us to understand the glorious truth concerning thy blessed Spirit coming up in this next passage. 
I pray you'd break shackles. I pray you'd set our affection on heavenly things. I pray you'd help us to behold Christ more gloriously than we ever have. Lord, we're your workmanship. We want to bring you glory. In Jesus' name, amen.